Greetings and welcome to another episode of Unpacking Islamophobia, a podcast project brought to you from the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar. I am an international human rights lawyer, senior research fellow at the Bridge Initiative and author of the book Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. My guest today is Professor Farid Hafez, who currently serves as a distinguished visiting professor of international studies at Williams College in Massachusetts. Originally from Austria, Professor Hafez has also been a Fulbright visiting professor at the University of California at Berkeley. And in 2014, he was also a visiting scholar at Columbia University in New York City. Professor Hafez is the founding editor of the German English Islamophobia Studies Yearbook and also co-editor of the annual European Islamophobia Report which is a collaborative work of 40 scholars covering more than 30 European countries. Professor Hafez regularly appears on prominent media outlets throughout the world, and he is a very dear colleague and friend of mine, Professor Farid Hafez. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for joining us today. Alaikum salam. Thank you for having me, Arsalan. Always good to be with you. Likewise, Farid. So, Farid, our, our podcast episode today will analyze the modern history of uh, what's been come to known uh, as Quran desecration. Uh, Quran desecration mm -hmm. also includes publicity stunts like Quran burning that we have seen right-wingers perform to incite violent responses from Muslims around the world since 9-11. In mid-2005, uh, the first allegations of deliberate Quran desecration uh, actually occurred uh, at Guantanamo Bay Prison in Cuba in front of Muslim prisoners where there was a widespread controversy that ultimately led to the U.S. Army uh, investigation confirming that there were four instances of Quran desecration and which led to riots around the world. Five years later in 2010, we Americans also saw a right-wing pastor named Terry Jones, who actually looked like a motorcycle gang member, uh, made global headlines for announcing his plans to burn a Quran on the anniversary of 9-11, which in response led to numerous riots and protests around the world, including 12 people being killed in Afghanistan. And now in the year 2023, we are seeing a resurgence of Quran burnings uh, in Europe, and uh, particularly and slightly bizarrely in Scandinavian countries like Denmark and Sweden. So my first question to you, Professor Hafez, is why are we talking about Quran burnings yet again? And can you give us a little bit of a narrative history and provide some background and context about these most recent 2023 Quran burning campaigns? All right. Well, thank you for this introduction. Uh, that's a great overview. And um, I think, you know, when we go to Europe, on the one hand, what we see here is that we have, I would say, not so popular far-right activists who are very much at the fringe, like not so, even like not so super successful politicians who try to become relevant with this initiative. Uh, like one, one of the people that really started this whole movement in the Scandinavian countries was um, a far-right leader um, named uh, Rasmus Paludan, who is of Danish-Swedish uh, 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 origin. And he did a serial of Quran burnings um, and started to stage public burnings of, of the Muslim holy book, basically in several locations across uh, Sweden in 2019. Um, some of them sparked protests and reactions in several cities. Um, there were also injuries, arrests, and damage to property. So there was like he made headlines with this uh, uh, with this initiative. Um, but Paludan also continued setting fire to the Quran and um, 
more recently in front of the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. Um, and that was triggered, obviously, not only with local, but also with international outreach. And I think this is also one of the reasons why we are sitting here now discussing this. And there are also other uh, small scale activists similar to Paludan, uh, like a Christian Iraqi refugee <clears throat> who staged a couple of uh, Quran burnings more recently. Now, I believe that the reason why they are doing this is basically to, to draw attention to their personalities. Um, so Paludan basically is an electorally speaking irrelevant politician uh, who began in Denmark, uh, moved then uh, to Sweden because he did not get more than 1.8% in national elections. Um, but he did uh, succeed in, in being convicted of hate speech. Uh, now, when he moved to Sweden, he basically established another far-right party uh, called in English the Hardline Political Party, uh, where he again adopted Quran burnings and he, as a tool um, to, to sort of organize a grassroots anti-Muslim movement. Um, but that also did not really play out very well. So I think he's much more of a media guy than that he is, in fact, a person that has any large support in, 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 in Sweden or Denmark. Um, now, while Paludan presents himself uh, as a defender of free speech, uh, which is obviously a touchstone of Swedish culture, his act of Quran burning is not about liberty or human rights. It's very much drawing on the far right ideology of the so-called new right, uh, which basically wants to restore the ethnic, the perceived ethnic homogeneity of white Nordic populations. Um, and, you know, burning the Quran somehow becomes a symbol of the of reestablishing this homogeneity by the exclusion of the Muslim other. But I think what made this uh, incident really important is really the, the geopolitical context. So we have the Swedish prime minister's statement who criticized the Quran burnings while still on the very same time defending the right of freedom of speech of to which he included the Quran burnings. And we also have the now more recently the Danish attempt to ban the burning of the whole of religious books uh, in general, uh, but clearly looking at, uh, at the uh, most recent Quran burning incidents. Um, and I, I think the, the main reason for that is foreign policy considerations. So on the one hand, there are still ongoing diplomatic battles between Turkey and Sweden uh, on the question of uh, Sweden's membership in NATO. Um, and because although uh, uh, the Turkish uh, uh, um, uh, president uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has accepted the possibility of Sweden's uh, membership, there is still the Turkish parliament that has to ratify that. And clearly there is an ongoing issue here with two things basically one is the pkk issue and the other thing is the, the quran burning that was always put forward uh, during these debates and as for denmark I, I think you know there is this possibility of outlawing the burning of holy scriptures which inter very interestingly comes um, you know just after that this country has abandoned its blasphemy law a couple of years ago i think six years or so so in, in a way this recent attempt comes as a surprise, one would say, in you know, in legal terms. But you know, I think what is really at the heart of this problem is, you know, uh, Denmark. I think fears very much the economic and political repercussions 
still, you know, having in mind what happened in 2005 and 6 uh, during the Mohammed Khartoum crisis. And both countries clearly, I would argue, are not giving Muslims, because they are giving Muslims like a very hard time. Um, the idea here is not really to take care of Islam and Muslims on a domestic level, but rather on a foreign policy level. You know, uh, my second question, uh, Professor Hafiz, revolves around the the locations uh, of these uh, Quran burning campaigns that we've recently seen in Scandinavian countries. And generally speaking, you know, people around the world might expect Scandinavian countries like Sweden, Norway, and Denmark to be friendly and pristine IKEA societies where everyone is welcome. So can you explain yeah. a little why Scandinavian countries are the epicenter of these 2023 Quran burning campaigns as opposed to other <clears throat> countries like Hungary or, or other places which are sort of established in terms of their, their far-right bona fides? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, I think it has very much a, a lot to do with the personalities that are in the game here, like Paludan. Um, and I would really say these people, on the one hand, they are, they are marginal. They are very much at the fringe. But then there is another movement. C clearly, um, now we have in Sweden a government that is in power uh, where... Um, although the far right um, is not formally part of the coalition, they are supporting the government, right? So without their support, and um, the government would just not be able to act. Now, the Sweden Democrats, as one of the more recent and more successful uh, parties on the far right, uh, has become one of the strongest political parties in Sweden. So even though they are not formally included in the government, they are very much dictating what, is, what has to happen. So there is a sentiment that goes very much in the direction of problematizing Islam and Muslims. And one even has to consider that even before the far right was, or the, the, the centrist right was in power in an alliance with the far right, uh, even before that, when the social democrats were in power, Muslims were having really a hard time. You had a wave of counter-terrorism, counter-extremism initiatives where Muslim civil society institutions were defunded, where schools were closed, et cetera, et cetera. And all this in the name of fighting extremism, which is much more of a hollow notion used to crack down on Muslim civil society as I see it. Sure. So uh, there is already like a sentiment out there that um, makes it quite difficult for Muslims. And although one remembers still the good days of Scandinavian welfare state systems, right? And this is part of our memory, of, like the more recent memory, I would say these times are definitely gone specifically for the Muslim population. And so my third question focuses on demographics and, and Muslims across Europe, we all know are growing in population, uh, both native born and, and also because of refugee uh, you know, trends. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, in your opinion, what is exactly at stake with these campaigns? You know, what, what's lurking behind these debates and what are some, why, why should countries not only across the EU, but, but worldwide, be concerned about what's going on? I mean, on the one hand, I think, you know, like on a symbolic level, what, what is really at stake is the question of what is the place of Muslims in Europe, right? I mean, this is really the, 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 the fundamental question um, um, that is being discussed. And one of the ideas, and obviously, I mean, Sweden is also one of those countries that is the champion of free, uh, free speech uh, in, uh, in a European comparison even. 
So it is really a cornerstone of, uh, of Swedish culture. Now, the idea that Muslims are the opposite of freedom of speech is very much a fundamental uh, idea of any sort of Islamophobic discourse, right? So everything the West stands for, it's like the East stands uh, for the opposite. Now, um, I believe I would speak here of what I would call a violent inclusion of Muslims. It is very similar to what happened when we had the cartoon crisis. So the necessity to ridicule your religion, the necessity to be able to laugh about your religion, this necessity to be able to desegregate your uh, your, your holy books. This is very much part and parcel of the uh, post-religious era in, in Europe. So it seems that if you really wanna become a European, like a full-fledged European, you have to be part of that cultural uh, and, and moral uh, understanding. And that is what I would call violent inclusion because obviously it does not allow for multiple different perspectives on how you treat your religious texts, but rather it assumes that there is only one way to go. And this is this assimilationist European project where basically at the end of the day, um, you fully have to, to, to be part and parcel of this sort of understanding. And there is no room for any alternative. So Farid, my fourth question to you, and you mentioned a little bit about this in, in each of your responses, but I thought uh, we could flesh it out a little bit is, you know, what are the reactions on behalf of the Muslim minorities within these European countries, as well as the responses of foreign dignitaries and, and heads of state from Muslim countries? Uh, you know, tell us about the conversation that we're seeing today around this topic. Yeah. Um, very important question, because I think, you know, in, in a way, so uh, a lot of the, the debates about the Quran burning are very imaginative part and parcel of, you know, this Islamophobic uh, mindset. Um, still, you know, at the end of the day, it's reactions that people will report about, especially in the media. Uh, and I found it really interesting, like, you know, how, um, you know, what kind of different reactions we had on behalf of those Muslims who are living in these Scandinavian countries on the one hand, but also like Muslim uh, leaders of state. And I think in a way um, they are aware of the long memory and they, they have a long memory in terms of what is really the history of these Quran burnings. And, and I would really speak of like two different histories. There is like um, the short history and the long history. Um, and when we, you know, I, I, as you introduced me at the very beginning, I am from Austria. And as somebody who has grown up in the German speaking country, uh, one of the things that comes to our mind immediately when we hear the book burnings is a poem from uh, a very famous German poet called Heinrich Heine, uh, who wrote this in the, uh, in, in, in the early 19th century, where he, he said, those who burn books will in the end burn people, quote, unquote. Oh. And it's interesting because uh, the, the poem that he speaks about is actually originally spoken by a Muslim character in a tragic love story, which was set in Granada in 1492 during the time of Reconquista. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's this uh, play that includes this Muslim. And, you know, usually this, this, uh, this uh, quote those who burn books will in the end burn people is 
is used in the context of the book burning of Jews uh, at the, uh, 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 during the days of the Nazi regime. Sure. So this is the more modern connection we have. Hmm. So as people who know Europe well and who are aware of this history, there is a component to the uh, book burning that is not only symbolically violent, but it is really violent in the literal sense of, you know, the murder of six million Jews. So this is also, by the way, a reason why the Jewish community has had a very harsh reaction on the Quran burnings, because this is their memory first and foremost, right, in, in modern Europe. Um, and from that point of view, um, I think it was very interesting to see that those Muslim individuals and activists who went on the street had quite interesting you know, reactions. Um, one of them was distributing chocolate during the Quran burning to chat with people. And by that, you know, representing a different image that uh, than, than the one that the perpetrator of the Quran burning wanted to present in the, in the public. And he, by that, interrupted this whole procedure of the Quran burning to, to show that basically Muslims are not, you know, the, uh, the enemies of freedom of speech, but rather uh, those who are there for, for dialogue. Then there was this other Muslim activist, this individual who basically received permission to burn uh, the Torah and the Bible outside of the Israeli embassy in Sweden. And once he got the permission, which also speaks to, you know, the, the high value of freedom of speech for Swedish authorities. But once he gr was granted this permission, he argued that he only wanted to draw attention to the recent Quran burning in the country, never intended to burn neither the Torah nor uh, the New Testament. But what he really uh, wanted to do is to show in, in a way as an activist to make the point that as a Muslim, it is immoral to burn the holy books of other people. So there are uh, lots of very interesting you know, reactions to that incident. I think what is also very telling is how Muslim majority countries use that. Um, and I feel that you know, not only the clergy, but also Muslims head of state, once they were out there saying that, you know, we want Sweden to stop that, it obviously showed how, how, how important religion is in those countries and how, to what extent they can also mobilize on that and you know, put pressure on that. I mean, the fact that the OIC made a statement, the Organization of Islamic Conferences made a statement tells you something about um, how those regimes can also draw on religion and mobilize religion you know, for further symbolic le le legitimacy in their countries be it monarchies, be it democracies or whatever. Um, and sometimes, you know, I feel like, because if you would have asked me like 15 years ago, um, do you want Muslims heads of states, you know, uh, to be there to defend Muslim uh, folks in Europe? I would have said no, uh, simply out of one reason, as somebody who is European, who resides in Europe, who has a Muslim background and who fights Islamophobia, I would say, you know, let us have, uh, you know, try to solve our problems on uh, ourselves. But I think we have seen so much interference from also uh, foreign regimes um, in, in, in the whole um, history, more recent history of Islamophobia in Europe, 
it also tells us that maybe at some point it might be even useful for other countries to jump in into this discussion. At the very same time, I am a little bit worried if these highly symbolic debates really distract our attention from the real problems Muslim folks have in their everyday lives. Like I, I, I gave this example of Sweden where Muslim associations were defunded, where um, uh, in the name of fighting extremism, Muslims, uh, 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 Muslim schools have been closed, et cetera, et cetera. So these are like institutional problems that these Muslim communities are going through in these countries. Like I would love to see Muslims heads of states jump into the discussion when things like that happen much, much more than let's say when a Quran burning is done. So my final question to you, Farid, is, is about the future. Uh, you know, you mentioned that <clears throat> the Scandinavian country of Denmark uh, recently made the very wise decision, in my opinion, to propose a ban on setting the Quran on fire in public after a series of burnings led to uproar in Muslim countries. Now, intellectuals like you and I understand that free speech is never absolute, meaning that you cannot yell fire inside of a crowded movie theater because people might get hurt or die. So what do you think about the Danish government's move to ban uh, the burnings of, of religious texts and should other U EU governments follow suit in your opinion? I think I'm more on the free freedom of speech side in this debate. And, you know, honestly, if the only way how you can make an argument is by such a despicable act, honestly, then do it, you know? Um, I think even I, even even if it incites violence, even if it, it I mean that, that's why free speech is not as a lawyer, we're always taught that yeah. free free speech is not absolute, right? You can't yell fire yeah. inside of a crowded movie theater and say that's free speech because it's not, right? And so I you know I, I want I want to parse this out a little bit is that if these countries are seeing that these bad faith actors are going to keep doing it no matter what, especially if they're fringe, they have nothing to lose, right? So wouldn't the best way, the most effective way to curtail this is to pass federal legislation that would not allow this? Because as you said, anybody who bans a religious book is pretty much just being a jerk. Look, the thing is, um, and I, I think I'm speaking very much like from the perspective of a lot of, you know, from, from a European perspective that has gone through a, desacralization and a secularization where it tries to loosen its bondage from the churches right and this is you know this is the backdrop of the history right. you know european countries do not in in general when it comes to religion um they are not very much interested you know in being in any way circumscribed by any sort of religious ideas now, clearly, societies are religious, and there are, there are different populations in, every, in each and every society. So religion is one, one strong component of it. And there should be freedom of religion. And I'm fully for that, obviously, as somebody who criticizes Islamophobia, writes about it, etc. But the, the, the question for me is, you know, because there are, I think there are different components in this whole debate. And one part of it is the media. Um, and that's not only true when it comes to Quran burning, it's true even for the whole rise of the far right. I believe one reason why the far right has become so successful is because media gave it so much coverage. 
Now we have to raise the question, like a guy who is founding a political party and receives 1.8% of the votes, should we give him that kind of attention? Like who cares about this, this Rasmus Paludan, honestly, you know? So maybe the question of how we should tackle that is not necessarily the law, but rather like, what do we, what do we value? What do media wants to cover? Um, what do we want to talk about? But at the end of the day, again, I think this is much more a symptom of a much, much, much larger problem, which very much resonates not only with the fringe far right, like Paludan, but which resonates with larger parts of the society, which is Muslims are not welcome here. And that's the, like, that's the message at the end of the day. So if we really want to solve this problem, I mean, we can have some legal amendments here and there, but I don't feel that it is the right way to say, okay, you know, by circumscribing and by introducing like, you know, restrictions to this and that act, the main argument at the end of the day will be it's because of Muslims, we are, <laughs> we are not able to say this anymore, to, to do that anymore. So rather than Muslims being the reason for and I would not even say it's the Muslims who are the reason for uh, for the restriction of, 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 of these acts, because this is coming from the power circles right. again. It's not from the Muslims, but there will be a narrative that will be pushed. And we see that already in, in, in bits and pieces here and there that, oh, it's because of the Muslims we are restricting our lives again. I would rather say Muslims should be at the forefront of fighting for open societies, democracies, and uh, and much more rather than you know standing there representing um the restriction of freedom of speech professor farid hafiz i would like to thank you for joining me on this episode of unpacking islamophobia today thank you thank you for oh, having me arsalan my pleasure to our audience thank you for joining us here today for more information about global islamophobia please visit bridge.georgetown.edu until next time